sermon text is Deuteronomy 5, verse 6, 20, as well as 19, 15 to 21. And you can find it on page 86 of your Bibles. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eyes shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Any of you guys fans of Denzel Washington? Show of hands, who's a fan of Denzel Washington? I like it. I think he's one of my favorite actors. And I think that my new favorite Denzel Washington movie is the movie Flight. He plays Whit Whitaker, and who despite being a world-class pilot is not without his demons. He, I mean, no one can fly like Whip, no one. Uh, my favorite scene is where a terrible storm forces him to invert the plane and land it upside down. And by doing so, he saves a lot of lives. And in a lot of ways, he's a hero. The only problem is that he's living a lie. He is an alcoholic in denial. His binge drinking damages a lot of relationships. He often loses his temper and puts others at risk. During the investigation of the plane crash, they find two empty vodka bottles on the plane. And towards the end of the film, we find Whip in the final hearing. And it is revealed at that moment that there was a flight attendant who had died on the plane, and she was treated twice for alcoholism. And all Whip had to do to get away with his crime was to state that it was his opinion that those two empty vodka bottles belonged to her. The setup was perfect for this perpetual liar to get away with everything. And yet in the moment of truth, he was not able to follow through with his rehearsed lies. He fumbles with his words, his body trembles, his face tightens, and his public confession is moving. He says this, I know for a fact that she did not drink that vodka because I drank the vodka. I drank the vodka bottles on the plane. On the nights leading up to the accident, October 11th, October 12th, and 13th and 14th, I was intoxicated. I drank all of those days, and I drank in excess. On the morning of the accident, I was drunk. I'm drunk now. I'm drunk right now because I'm an alcoholic. The very next scene, we see him in prison recalling that moment. And he said, that was it. 
I was done. It's as if I hit my lifelong limit for lies. I cannot tell one more lie. And this is going to sound really stupid coming from a man who's in prison, but for the first time in my life, I'm free. And I love that film. I love that film because we can resonate with this fear of being known. What if the truth came out? We can resonate with this fear of being caught and found out. His desire to tell the truth and yet unable to do so, even at great cost. Maybe at work we're struggling, but we find it easier to not ask any questions or not seek out any help. Maybe our marriage is falling apart, but we find it easier to ignore the issue or to put on a face that a peace and harmony in front of everybody else. Today we are continuing our series in the book of Deuteronomy, and we have been looking intently at the Ten Commandments, and today we come to commandment number nine. Do not lie. Do not lie. My hope is that we will see that the giver of this law is not some prude, but is one who really wants to set us free. My hope is that we'll become a people who will not only want to tell the truth, but will also be empowered to do so. So I'm going to delve into these passages by asking two main questions. First, how do we lie? And then second, how do we tell the truth? Simple enough. How do we lie? How do we tell the truth? So first, how do we lie? How do we lie? Now, as the Christ the King pastors got together to discuss all the ways in which we lie, I mean, we were just all overwhelmed. I mean, we, we lie on our resumes. We bloat our resumes to advance our career. We lie when it's advantageous, when it's convenient. We lie in order to hurt people or to not hurt people. We tell half-truths. We leave out details. Now, many people in our culture would say that everyone does it all the time, and it's really not that big a deal. But the book of Deuteronomy makes it crystal clear that it really is a big deal. Now, John Calvin, when reflecting upon this commandment, said, whoever bears false testimony against his neighbor kills him. Kills him. Now, that commandment, do not bear false testimony, is an interesting way of saying do not lie. But in that culture, it made a lot of sense. You know, it, before the days of DNA samples and forensic evidence, before the days of fingerprints and security cameras, all that a community had to convict a crime was the testimony of eyewitnesses. And so God puts a system of justice in place where you had to have at least two or three witnesses and only after a thorough investigation would a, case be, uh, would a, would a decision be made. Now, a lie could cost someone his reputation. A lie or a false testimony could literally cost someone his life. Lies are destructive by nature. And what if one of the most common ways in which we lie is one we do all the time and yet is one we're not very aware of. It's one we wouldn't normally think of. It's one we do to ourselves. 
What if the one we're bearing false testimony against more than anyone was against ourselves? Now, the Bible speaks of self-deception everywhere. The Old Testament says the heart is deceitful. It is terribly ill, unable to cure itself. In the New Testament, Jesus' most uh, pronounced judgments or uh, rebukes were against those he called hypocrites. Hypocrites. Now, that word hypocrite, do you know what the literal translation of the word hypocrite is? It's an actor. An actor. It implies that there's a mask, and the one who you see performing on the outside is not the person underneath. It implies that there's hiding. And so do we. We lie behind pretty faces in order to appear more impressive, more put together, more accomplished than we really are. We lie behind pretty faces with God even. We work so hard to make our prayers sound so prim and proper. We carefully construct our words to tell him what we think he wants to hear. We don't tell him how we really feel, what we really want, or how ticked off we are. We edit our prayers. We speak to him in someone else's voice. Now, we don't just do this with God. We lie behind pretty faces with each other as well. Maybe we do so at church. When we ask, ourselves, we ask each other the question, how are you? How are things? How are you doing? You know, what do we always say? What do we always hear? I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. That's all you ever hear. We smile when our jobs are on the brink of destruction. We smile when our families are falling apart, when our kids are out of control. We're often up late at night, worried sick, and yet we're always fine. We lie behind pretty faces. Do you know what mask you're wearing? Do you know what pretty face you're lying behind? You know, one mask that I often wear is the mask of being an intellect. It's the mask of being an intellect. I think it started when I repeated the third grade. And ever since that moment, I've tried so hard to appear smarter than I really was. And I worked so hard to get into UCLA. And I fully equipped myself for any argument or debate by studying philosophy and logic. No one was going to outsmart me, baby. And in seminary, I was working so hard for a PhD because those three letters after my name would tell me who I was. And still to this day, it's still so tempting to reach for the mask. I mean, a couple weeks ago, we had a friend over and she noticed our diplomas on our wall. And she noticed that Kendra had two seminary degrees and I only had one. And I quickly pointed out to her that, yeah, but I finished a three-year program in two years. (laughs) And if you look closely and compared my degree with hers, in fine print, mine said magna cum laude. (laughs) And instead of impressing her, she she quickly joked, too bad didn't say summa cum laude. And we all laughed, including myself, but ouch. (laughs) Sore spot. And I'd be lying to you if I said it didn't bother me just a little bit. But bringing it into light, telling the truth, 
slowly erodes the power that mask has over me. Do you know what mask you're wearing? For many of us, it's not so much that we're telling a lie as that we're living it. We're living one. And the devil, the father of lies, wants us to believe that we cannot take off the mask. One of his favorite lies he loves to tell is one of his go-tos is that being known and being loved is an either-or proposition. If they knew us, they wouldn't love us. And if they love us, it's because they don't really know us. So you can have one or the other, but you can't have both. And so we settle. We lie behind pretty faces where we're loved by everyone and known by no one. You see, the one who has hurt the most in this is us. John Calvin was right. Bearing false testimony does kill. And the one who has hurt the most is us. Lying is exhausting. It's isolating. It's even debilitating. And it leads us into a cycle of self-destruction, shame, loneliness. We lie behind pretty faces where we're loathed by everyone and known by no one. So how do we tell the truth? How do we tell the truth? If we lie behind pretty faces, in part because we have bought into the lie that being known and loved is an either-or proposition, then we need to dispel that lie and to tell the truth. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves and to be in community so that the truth can be heard. Now, the reality of the risen Christ, the one who has come to set us free, is not experienced in isolation, but in community. Now, I don't know this because I'm an expert on lions, although I have watched the Discovery Channel. But I am told that lions don't hunt uh, by going after the herd. They don't go for the herd. They look for the outlier, the weak link, the straggler, the cattle that's wandering off on its own. And so our enemy, the devil, who, who prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour, wants to isolate us. And we're familiar with his lies. We're all alone. We're the only ones with this issue. They will never understand. We will be shunned, ostracized, embarrassed. And he uses the fear of abandonment, the fear of isolation, to further isolate us. And so we need to dispel those lies by being in and helping to create a gospel community. A gospel community empowers us to be fully known and to be fully loved. So how do we become a gospel community? How do we, Christ the King, become a gospel community? First, name our masks. Name our masks. Now, it's very difficult for the truth to speak into our lives if, unless we first identify it. And it might not be an easy process done overnight. It might be slow. 
take a lot of reflection, talking with people honestly. It might be a painful process. Why? Because too often we become too dependent on our masks that we don't know who we are without them. You know what I love about AA? Is that when they get to the podium, the first thing they share after their name is they admit what their problem is. How do we become a gospel community? Name our masks. Second, dare to share. Dare to share. I thought that was pretty cool. I got that from Kendra. <laughs> dare to share. Now, Brennan Manning asked the question, why is it that Alcoholics Anonymous seems to be more of a healing community than the church itself? Why does AA have more healing power than our churches, it seems? Why is that? This is what he had to say. People who enter the community of Alcoholics Anonymous enter because their lives become, have become unmanageable. Most of the rest of us will never admit our lives are unmanageable, and the poser will back us up on that. The poser is all about risk management and, when necessary, damage control. The poser is a handler, a spin doctor, a fixer, a cleanup artist. He'll do whatever it takes to maintain the appearance that we are not out of control, that our lives are not unmanageable, that we are not in need of a rescuer. When my son was about a month old, uh, he, went, he and I spent several nights in the hospital because he had a breathing issue. And when I shared this with the church, they were able to love me well. Uh, but one guy, one of the things that he said really stuck with me. This is what he told me. We are only as sick as our secrets. When we bring our sickness into the light, something magical happens. I don't know what it is or how to explain it, but something heals. I like that. And I myself have found that to be true. The church is supposed to be the one place where we're supposed to be able to bring who we really are. But we often find that's the one place where we feel like we can't. The church is the one place where we're supposed to be able to bring who we are, yet often it's the one place where we feel like we can't. Now, why is that? Why is that? Christ the King, Jamaica Plain, Roxbury. You need the permission to bring your struggles, your problems, your doubts, your worries, your addictions, your concerns, your issues here. You need the permission to tell the truth and to ask for help. And I need that same permission from you. Dare to share. How do we become a gospel community? First, name our masks. Second, dare to share. Third, don't pray too quickly. Don't pray too quickly. Now, this might be the first time ever in the history of the cosmos where you heard a pastor say, don't pray too quickly. So what do I mean by that? So you're in a community group, and someone opens up about their issues and pours out their heart because we, we might be get taken back by the vulnerability or we're too uncomfortable. We are often tempted to pray too quickly in order to sever the awkwardness. And it takes discipline not to cut them off, but to engage them and to allow God to work in them as they sit in their pain. 
Allow them to finish their thoughts. Ask them clarifying questions. Ask them if there's any way that you can love them or if there's anything they need from you. And then, when the time is right, pray for that person. For the record, I am for prayer. Just don't do it too quickly. How do we become a gospel community? First, name our masks. Second, dare to share. Third, don't pray too quickly. Fourth and lastly, cover one another. Cover one another. Now, one of the most courageous things that someone can do in public, in front of others, let alone yourself, one of the most courageous things someone can do is tell the truth about their lie. Is tell the truth about their lie. And when someone tells the truth, they feel exposed. But we don't want them out there feeling exposed. We do want them being known. So what's the difference between the two? What's the difference between being exposed and being known? Covering. Covering. Say you're in a community group and you're sharing prayer requests. The first person says, I could do a better job of balancing my budget. The second person says, I watch a lot of television. I guess I can wake up earlier and be more productive during the day. The third person says, my marriage is falling apart. We haven't been intimate in months. I have inappropriate thoughts turned to inappropriate images and I feel powerless to do anything different. And you have awkward glances and a deafening silence. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer might have this to say about that very moment. Here's the word of Bonhoeffer. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. Next time someone opens up about their struggles, about their secrets. Don't change the subject. Don't hijack the conversation. Don't quickly move on to the next person. First, take the time to acknowledge that it takes a lot of courage to speak up. Admire them for telling the truth. Relate with them from your own brokenness and speak the words of life. Relate from your own brokenness and speak words of life. You know what a good community group is or even a good community? A good community group is one where we can dare to take off our masks and be given the courage to keep them off. Let me repeat that. A good community group is one where we can dare to take off our masks and be given the courage to keep them off. That is covering. So there you have it. How do we become a gospel community? Name our masks. Dare to share. Don't pray too quickly. Cover one another. A gospel community empowers us to be fully known and to be fully loved. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. And even if you're not into the whole Jesus thing, you ought to want the sort of gospel community to be true, to be possible, to be out there. Wouldn't it be great 
if we could be part of a community where we weren't just fully known, we weren't just fully loved, but we were also fully known. Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus came and died to give you that very thing. And it all starts when we acknowledge that that possibility can only become a reality first and foremost in Him. Maybe you're here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus, but you have bought into the lie. And this whole community talk, this whole gospel community, just, it's just so foreign to you. It's just easier to live the lie. It definitely feels safer. But I think, I think, this is how we get to the point where we can start living the truth. Matthew 26. Matthew 26, 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, at last two came forward and said, this man said, I'm about to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the chief priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. The only way we were able to sentence the innocent Son of God to death was with a lie. And they conspired together and they twisted Jesus' words and they brought a half-truth. And they brought false testimony of two witnesses. But Jesus remained silent. He remained silent. Now the only reason why the accused would remain silent in court is if the accusations were actually true. And yet, Jesus remained silent. Why? Why? Because in just a few hours, he would take upon himself all the false testimonies, all the pretensions, all the pretty faces, and make them his own, and he would die a liar's death. You know what the good news is? The good news is if Jesus died for my lies, then it means I don't have to. I can stop pretending. Jesus didn't die for the person who I hoped to become, the best me. Jesus died for me. The real me. The me behind the mask. The gospel says that I am fully known. That's why Christ had to die. But I also at the same time am fully loved. He likes me. He doesn't just love me because that's the theological God thing to do. He likes me. He really, really likes me. Do you believe that to be true of you? Do you doubt that? You doubt that? You want to know the truth? Most of the times, I doubt it too. And I'm a pastor. And that's why I need you to empower me to believe the truth. To tell me here that what Jesus said of me is in fact true. I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says of this. He says, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself. 
The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. Let me say that again. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. A gospel community empowers us to be fully known and to be fully loved. I was once part of a small men's group in my old church in Atlanta, Georgia. And one day I was given the courage to take off my mask. And after revealing the truth about me, who I really was, my story, my insecurities, my wounds, and at the moment I felt vulnerable and exposed, I began to find healing. Later that night, I received a small, uh, an email from one of the guys in the group, and this is what it read. It really helps me see inside you a little bit. And man, I really like what I see. Jesus deeply loves what's behind the mask. He not just knows the real me, but he deeply loves the real me. And if I can believe that to be true, I just might find the courage to take my mask off with you. And I need your help to help me get the courage to keep it off. A gospel community empowers us to be fully known and to be fully loved. Let's pray. Father, I pray that these words will not fall to the ground, that the evil one won't come and snatch it up. But Lord, you'll dispel his lies that you share us, you share with us, whisper to us. Rejoice over us. Sing over us your amazing gospel of truth. Lord, we pray for those of us here who are just skeptical of whether or not this could be true of them. We ask, we ask that you, Holy Spirit, will assure them that it is. May we become a community that would reflect this very thing. In your honor, we pray. Amen.